great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the history of economic thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. So let's get started. It is a um, enormous pleasure to have Eric Helena here today with me. Um, such an inspiration <laughs> since I was a PhD student. So I'm just very excited for you to be here today. I'd like um, to ask you first to present yourself, if that's all right. Right. So my name is Eric Leiner, and I'm a professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada. And I teach in a political science department as well as the Balsley School of International Affairs. But if I were to self-identify, I think I'd describe myself as an international political economist. So someone working across political science, economics, and, uh, and also more generally history. Thank you, Eric. Okay. So the first question I have um, for you, perhaps it's a bit starting at the beginning, how did you end up working on the history of international political economy? And why do you think this historical um, work is important? Um, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> um, um, so my field of international political economy is a field that sort of had its modern origins in the 1970s, when there was a movement uh, within the field of international relations to look more at political economy questions. And you can kind of imagine why that happened in the 1970s with the breakdown of the Britain with this exchange rate system and the new international economic order and, and broader trade tensions and the oil shock, all these various things in the early 70s encourage international relations people to think about economics more. And at the same time, there were some international economists who became aware of the need to look at the political foundations of the subject that they were studying. But all of the people who pioneered that field all said, uh, we're reviving a deeper tradition of political economy from the pre-1945 period. Uh, and, and I think they did that partly to legitimate what they were doing within uh, the field of international relations or the field of international economics. But it was also a genuine sense that there was something to be learned from uh, this earlier period. But what always struck me in teaching that, so if, if you open any textbook in international political economy, you'll find that kind of a statement. But usually the textbooks say uh, there were kind of three traditions that were built upon in the 1970s from this earlier period. One is an economic liberal tradition, Smith, Ricardo, etc. Uh, and then there's kind of a neo-mercantilist tradition, Hamilton, List. Uh, and then there's a kind of a Marxist tradition, which interestingly, Marx is often not a key focus. It's more the Marxist theories of imperialism in the early 20th century. Uh, and so, you know, I've always taught that, the textbooks teach it, but but my own research, I knew that this was uh, too limited a way of thinking about the history, the deep history of the field. And it, too limited in two senses. One, one that it was all European, or in the case of Alexander Hamilton, American thinkers. And it, we were always presenting to students like nobody thought about political economy outside of Europe and the United States before 1945, which is obviously an absurd idea. Uh, and then the other thing that always bugged me about the way the textbooks were describing this was that I knew there were other perspectives than those three. And so to the sense that if you go in the pre-1945 period, it's a three-way debate, just it, it didn't resonate with my own understanding. I knew there were other perspectives, uh, which which were often like much more important than those three, or the debate was between a liberal and something other than those two that have just described neo-mercantilists or Marxists. So I, to be honest, I had been kind of waiting for someone else to write 
a, a kind of deep history of thought. Like, you know, in economics, there's tons of histories of economic thought or, or international relations. There's a lot of histories of international relations. IPE, my field, has not produced that. And so I thought, oh, someone will do this one day. And nobody did. And so about 10 years ago, I thought, well, I guess I, guess I should do it. Uh, and I'm actually super interested in it. So it wasn't a chore in any way. Um, but I, but I also thought it would take about one or two years. Like about, oh, I'll do a quick, you know, quick little thing that somebody needs to do this. And it ended up taking, you know, eight or nine years because I realized my own knowledge was severely limited in many areas. And I also found myself learning about all kinds of things, which um, really transformed my own sense of how poorly the discipline had been presenting uh, this history. And so that was, you know, enormously fun. And I, I probably took much more time than I should have, because it was just extremely interesting to do. In a sense, to make a case for why uh, students of political economy in general need to know this intellectual history. You know, I really think that uh, people who are studying political economy today need to understand a deep intellectual history. And I think there's two reasons. One is that a lot of the things that they think they're pioneering today have been discovered before. And so there's no need to reinvent the wheel. And, and this is even in the case of perspectives that are often described as very new ones, like environmental perspectives. You know, it's a deep 200-year history of thinking about the relationship to the environment and, and political economy, maybe deeper than that. Uh, true of of um, of you know many of the debates today about deglobalization or or um, or issues around gender and the global economy you know these have very deep history and so that's one reason but the other reason I think for my students at least but I think this is true for all students is that they see references to uh, thinkers historically and often don't understand those references so just to give an example Xi Jinping you know, references Sun Yat-sen in his speeches. And yet Sun Yat-sen appears nowhere in our textbooks. And so it's, you know, it's just a, it's just a limitation of our teaching that, that, you know, a major powerful figure in the world economy is talking about someone that we're not teaching. So, so that's the other case I would make. And, and there are many other examples of this where thinkers from the pre-1945 period are invoked either by scholars, but often by, you know, leading political figures. And, and so students need to know that if they're going to understand the contemporary world. So that's my little pitch for why, you know, why IPE students need to understand this stuff. Yeah. It's interesting when I was reading your, your latest books um, this week was that I could sense your enthusiasm through the words <laughs> and I can hear it now in your voice. <laughs> um, so second question, why do you think it's important to do in-depth readings and analyses of thinkers to tease out the differences, which I'll say it again, which you do, you know, you do in these, in, in your works and you do it really well. You know, I, I think that um, people are often getting lumped. So your question is about, you know, how do you tease out the different, why it's important to tease out the differences. I think uh, people are often getting lumped together into camps. And this may be, you know, a bit of a, a fault of political scientists in general. We, we like to categorize people. Uh, and it's because political science is often talking about ideational debates. And so and so it'll, it, you know, has a tendency to say, well, there's liberals here and there's, you know, Marxists here. And, and, and certainly that's very useful and important to understand that there are these uh, big differences between uh, different ways of thinking about the world. But, but that, that categorization often hides what I think are fascinating differences within these camps and often differences that are transcending the camps. So I'll just give you an example that comes up in, in um, the latest book that I've written, like debates around imperialism, for example, in the pre-1945 period, which is a major you know, phenomenon that everyone's trying to understand before 1945. 
the, the debates about whether you're kind of a pro-imperialist or an anti-imperialist do not correspond with uh, you know, a kind of a Marxist versus an economic liberal or versus a, a neo-mercantilist debate. There's, there's supporters of imperialism and economic liberalism, there's opponents of imperialism. And the same is true in the neo-mercantilist camp, the same is true even in the Marxist camp. Uh, and so that's why the differences matter. <laughs> like we, we need to we need to talk about differences in the way we usually do, which is they're big ideological camps, but they're also these fascinating uh, debates that transcend those camps, some of which are crucially important today. Let me just, one, one other example. Um, if you think, like I'm teaching in my IP courses a lot more these days about security issues than I used to because the relationship between the world economy and geopolitics is just very um, salient at the moment. And, you know, when you go back historically, like just take an example of Cobden, you know, uh, mid 19th century and John Hobson, early 20th century, both economic liberals. Hobson's actually like a huge, you know, fan of Cobden and yet has a completely different view on the relationship of peace and its relationship to free trade, where Cobden thinks, you know, free trade is a, is a force, an agent of peace. And, and, um, and Hobson sort of come along and says, well, you know, if a country is going to act in a way that's disruptive of the international system, there should be collective sanctions against them. In other words, isolate them from the world economy, as opposed to Cotton's vision of get everyone to trade with each other. And so there, you know, even within a liberal tradition of two, two people who are very tightly linked intellectually, they have a completely different view on this fundamental question of the relationship of, of, of you know, how do you deal with um, threats to peace? The third question I had was, what kinds of difficulties do you find with searching for intellectual origins? Right. Uh, lots of difficulties. <laughs> um, yeah, this is, I think, one of the most difficult tasks if you're doing this kind of work. And, and I know you've done this kind of work, so you, you've probably encountered it more than I have. Uh, but the, I think the, um, it's very time-consuming work, first of all. And so... Um, I, you know, I, in, in my own case, I felt I was glad I didn't do this when I was younger <laughs> because it's, it's, you know, it takes a very long period of time to read a lot of primary texts, compare them to each other, chase down references. And, and you're often, so let's say you're reading a primary text and you see them refer to a scholar and you, and you think, I don't know who that is. And so then you need to go off and read. My strategy was always to try to read as much secondary literature as I could, but then I'd always want to read the primary text of that person. And if I didn't have the linguistic skills to try to find a translation, or at least to talk to a specialist who had read the primary text. Uh, and But that's very time consuming, you know, because sometimes that'll take two or three days just following one, one reference in a text. And sometimes the reference doesn't really matter that much in the end. And so it's um, it's it's time consuming. I don't mean that as a complaint because it's absolutely fascinating to do that. And you're, you're constantly, like your learning curve is very, very high. I don't need to tell you this. I, I know you've done this work much more than I have, uh, but, it, but I find that uh, absolutely fascinating to chase down these things. And many of them are rabbit holes that don't lead to anything. Uh, but, but the ones that do are just enormously rewarding because you suddenly, a whole world is opened up where you see the kind of world that the person was living in more clearly than you had before. You're, you're never going to understand it completely, but you begin to think, oh, this is who they're reading, or this is this is someone they talked to. And I, I found that really, um, really, really stimulating to understand that. Yeah. And I think it's, um, I mean, this is what we've done for a lot of the, the bigger named um, economists like Adam Smith or David Ricardo, the Mills, etc. You know, they're even like, 
sources where we can know what books they had in their private library and um one of my dreams one day is to do that for the <laughs> for the indian economists i look at and hopefully other economists that i'm i'm now branching out to other countries in what we call the global south today um but it's I'm, i i will not be doing it now in the early stage of my career because <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> lead to that many publications but rather kind of a resource for other yeah. Other scholars wanting to go down the same rabbit holes as I go down, but your your example there reminded me of one like one of the most interesting things, which you probably know already. But Henry Carey, who I think is absolutely fascinating figure in the mid nineteenth century U.S., like he had access to one of the largest private libraries of political economy in the world at that time, which just happened to have been collected by a friend of his, and um, and I am dying to see. <laughs> list of all the books that was in that library and a lot of them were at uh, university of um, pennsylvania so I, I actually have a trip planned in the next uh, month to go down and have a look at how much they still have left of that but it's exactly for that reason to try to see what 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 did he have access to at that time yeah it's, um, we don't know how if he read the entire library right but at least we could have yeah. get some sense of um uh the kinds of ideas that he 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 could get a hold of yeah Exactly. To give our listeners a sense of what your two latest books are about, could you explain what and who the neo-mercantilists are and the contested world economy? Right. So the, let me start with the contested world economy, the one that just came out, because that's the one that led me to the neo-mercantilists. I didn't intend to write the neo-mercantilists. That was an accidental publication, if you like. Uh, it was kind of a large footnote to the broader project. Uh, and so the, the contested world economy was exactly trying to do what I was describing earlier, which is to present to my field a uh, pre-1945 uh, origins of debates about the politics of the world economy. And so um, it does that through doing some conventional things. So it talks about uh, the history that is in our textbooks. So Smith, Ricardo, Mill, you know, the liberal tradition going through to Keynes. Uh, and then uh, the neo-mercantilists, Hamilton, List, but a set of other thinkers as well, and then the Marxist tradition. But it then does two di different things that are not in our textbooks, which I hope is helpful to students. And, and I think maybe students not just of international political economy, but I hope also his history of economic thought people or people in geography or sociology or other, other fields that are interested in thinking about the world economy. And so the two things are, one is to say, uh, could we at least um, describe those three uh, perspectives that are featured very prominently in a more global way. So that when we think about liberal thought, uh, it's not just European thinkers in the pre-1945 period, but also thinkers around the world who were uh, engaging with uh, economic liberal ideas. And in most cases, those thinkers were um, uh, reading a European text, a prominent text, especially Smith's The Wealth of Nations, and then interpreting it in their own context and often uh, adapting it in very creative ways. And I think those adaptations deserve to be recognized as important intellectual contributions. Uh, and so that happens not just with the liberal tradition, but also with the neo-mercantilist and the Marxist traditions. Um, but the other thing is to look at where there were sometimes independent origins of similar ideas in places outside Europe. So one example in the liberal tradition, for example, is Chinese thought in the 18th century was quite sophisticated about thinking about how markets work and, and even ideas about how markets uh, serve the public good, you know, kind of a Smithian uh, notion in that broad sense. 
uh, and yet with no engagement with European thought. And so, you know, it's just an interesting example how you can tell the history of European economic liberalism, maybe in a, you know, a way that isn't so focused on European thinkers. And that's definitely true when you get into the neo-mercantilist camp, where there are these very clear independent origins of neo-mercantilist thought uh, with no engagement with Liszt or Hamilton, you know. And so it's very important for us, I think, to identify those and recognize that they still have lineages to the current day. So a Japanese or Korean or Chinese uh, kind of industrial policy in the late 20th century or even in earlier periods is informed by a different intellectual tradition that, that I think we, we need to understand. So anyway, that's what one, one half of the book does is to kind of globalize the sense of those three, I call them three orthodoxies because they're so well known. And then the second half of the book says, but actually there were all kinds of other debates going on beyond those three uh, debates. And so there I go through uh, autarkic thought, for example, which doesn't really fit in a, obviously doesn't fit in a liberal tradition, but doesn't really fit much in a Marxist tradition and not a neo-mercantilist tradition because neo-mercantilists generally wanted to promote state-led industrialization in an integrated world economy, like to become more competitive. Whereas the autarchists were saying, let's just retreat. And, and it doesn't, it's not a tradition that we've taken very seriously in the post-1945 period because the whole Bretton Woods system was designed to promote integration. And so there are you know, cases like North Korea or Mao in the 1960s, but we generally portray them as odd, you know, odd cases. Uh, but in the pre-1945 period, autarchists were very serious intellectual tradition. And, and so just to take an example, like Japan, you know, in the in the 1850s and 60s, the debate is between autarchists who want to preserve Japan's kind of self-sufficiency orientation since the 1630s, 40s, uh, against, you know, some liberals and some neo-mercantilists, but that's the debate. And so it's not the three-way debate that's portrayed in the textbook. So anyway, that's one example. Then I also talk about environmentalist thought, uh, feminist thought, pan-African thought, pan-Asian thought, pan-Islamic thought, um, and even conceptions of regionalism, which I think some of which are relevant to the current period and, and deserve a bit more attention. So the point is just to widen to say debates about the politics of the world economy were not just debates between liberals, Marxists, and neo-mercantilists. There were all kinds of other perspectives, some of which overlapped in some cases, but some of which don't overlap at all. A little bit more on this um, neo-mercantilist book, especially because um, the, the Indian economists I look at, of course, you, you've labeled as neo-mercantilists and, and rightly so, right? Even though they're quite, they're not all neo-mercantilists. Anyway, the, why do you think that they, this perspective of neo-mercantilism is marginalized when IPE, international political economy, is framed in these um, binary terms, economic liberalism and Marxism? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I actually spent a lot of time trying to think about that because we have uh, a lot of books about the history of economic liberalism and a lot of books about the history of Marxist thought about the world economy. And yet, uh, and, and there are books about List, for example, or books about Hamilton, certainly. Um, but no kind of history of neo-mercantilism as a as a as a coherent um, school of thought about the politics of the world economy. Yeah, just to say, just for the listeners, I mean, sometimes this is called economic nationalism. Yes. Right? So yeah, and let me let me speak to that because that's also true in the field of international political economy. It's often described as an economic nationalist tradition. So I should explain what I mean by neo-mercantilist. A, a neo-mercantilist for me is someone who. Um, is reacting against the liberal tradition that begins, or at least is made prominent with Smith, 
but is essentially saying, you know, Smith critique mercantilism, but actually I understand the critique, but I think um, many of the mercantilist ideas are still valid. And in particular, the idea of using strategic trade protectionism, like, like protectionism is designed to cultivate uh, a local sector uh, and other forms of state economic activism. They may be domestic forms, they may be foreign economic policy forms uh, in order to pursue uh, the, 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 and to maximize the state's power and wealth. So, you know, a mercantilist does those things, strategic trade protectionism with state activism to pursue power and wealth. A new mercantilist does the same things, but the difference is that they understand the liberal critique and they still hold the position. And so it's a more sophisticated, you know, version of mercantilism because they're understanding what the criticisms of it are. Uh, and so why, why not call them economic nationalists? I think it's actually really important to distinguish. I, I find the term economic nationalism and maybe this is just my own, um, uh, you know, uh, my own views on this. But but there's actually a whole group of us now in international political economy that have tried to make this point that that if economic nationalism is the a belief that a nationalist has certain views about the economy, like those views are incredibly diverse. And so uh, a, a nationalist can be certainly a neo-mercantilist, and many of them are. Uh, but you could also be an autarchist, and many nationalists historically have been autarchists. Uh, but you could also be a liberal. And so many nationalists are free traders. So taken my own country of, uh, of Canada, the Quebec nationalist movement has generally been one of the biggest supporters of North American free trade. Uh, or if you take List, you know, List, who's often seen as the founding figure of economic nationalism as tradition, argued that the British in the 19th century were right to pursue free trade because it was in their national interests. And so there's nothing in economic nationalism, I think, that leads to a particular policy program. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broad category, which I think is useful to say, you know, nationalists have certain views about the economy, uh, but, but when you get to their policy program, it's all over the place. And so that's why uh, myself, but also many other people in my field have, have said we shouldn't uh, use economic nationalism as a synonym for protectionism or you know belief in subsidies or or controls on foreign direct investment ever sometimes those things are driven by economic nationalism but they might be driven by other things you know sectoral interests or whatever special interest groups uh, and there are lots of economic nationalists who don't like those things and so that's why I prefer the term uh, neo-mercantilism which I think identifies both the policy program, which is strategic trade protectionism and state activism, uh, but also the goal, which is power and wealth of the state. Like that's really central to them. And that distinguishes them from a liberal or from a Marxist who have different policy programs and also different uh, ultimate goals. So then why why is this perspective marginalized? Right. <laughs> right. I guess today in IP is the way you put it in yeah. the book, right? Yeah, so so right. So back to this question, why nobody's written a history of this? Like that's what really struck me. I was writing this broader book and I thought, oh my gosh, like I have a chapter on neo-mercantilism and there's no there's no classic to kind of <laughs> go to. Uh and so I and so I ended up writing trying to write a book that did that. I, you know, I don't imagine it as a classic, but but just a way to try to uh, summarize some of the history of that field. And so the question is why had nobody done that before? And I think one explanation is that the Cold War, so I'm speculating here, right? I mean, I, I hope somebody looks at this 
more seriously than I did. But I, I think the Cold War really did. Um, I, I think the Cold War encouraged a kind of binary um, conception of political economy debates between liberals or capitalists, you know, and communists or Marxists or whatever. And so, and you see that still in many curriculums, like like you kind of treat treat the debate in a binary sense. And then the Cold War ends. And that might have been an opening, except that the end of the Cold War was kind of a triumph of liberal economic liberal thought. Uh, and so the idea that you would you know, devote a lot of time to looking at, at uh, a neo-mercantilist tradition seemed kind of old fashioned. Like, why would you do that? This is getting outdated. Everybody's liberalizing. And, uh, and so I think that's maybe why it got a little bit marginalized. But certainly if you go before 1945, like this is a big tradition and and anyone writing about political economy is reading, you know, List or Schmoller or, you know, all of these different thinkers. Uh, it's just after 1945, it gets a little bit marginalized. So even figures who were promoting a kind of a Listian view, um, like maybe Raoul Prebisch to take an example, uh, Argentine economist who, you know, gets associated with, uh, CEPAL, and then with the UNCTAD um, movements to push, you know, strategic trade protectionism is a legitimate goal of, of uh, lower income countries. He, you know, he's often, people don't know how to classify him. Like, like the, some liberals say, oh, he's a Marxist, you know, and he's not, he's a conservative central banker from Argentina. But also the, the Marxists often don't like him, you know, oh, he's so conservative, you know, he's, and so, but it was a third tradition. Uh, but, it, but in the Cold War, it became, you um, I think diff it just became difficult to talk about that third perspective because it didn't fit in that broader ideological debate that was so prominent in 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 world politics. So that's my speculation. I don't know. There's, there may be other reasons. And it's almost like if you look at scholars that are marginalized or they're not as well known, you you automatically have that question like, but why have they not been read? And then I think it forces you to go to these contextual explanations, and one of which you've just given us, right? And it's just it is fascinating to think about. Um, oh, fascinating. I mean, this is why I went into history of economics, right, to understand this connection between the context and the ideas that, that we come up with, but more, more so the kind of the ideas that stick, you know, the ideas that, that take, get taken up and, and people um, sometimes eventually take for granted or, you know, because it's, as, as you've mentioned in, 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 in your books too, that neo-mercantilist perspectives are much more popular today, right, than they were. Yes. So it's interesting how the context today is is bringing back this acceptance. Exactly, and and I also think the kind of early attempts to talk about this in my field took place at the at the time that people were beginning to see the Japanese uh, state led development model, kind of nineteen seventies and eighties. And so Gilpin, Robert Gilpin, is a major figure in my field, who's one of the pioneers of international political economy. He he was someone who said it's a three way debate. Uh, you know, it's liberals and Marxists, but there's also this, he called it an economic nationalist tradition, but he had Japan in mind, like that was the context for him, I think. Uh, and then, as you say, like, it, certainly with the rise of China, and more generally East Asian kind of developmentalism, I think that's just given a lot more prominence to this. And then, of course, Trump gets elected and 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 uh, you, you kind of see this neo-mechanical perspective at the center of the system itself. And so it's hard it's hard not to ignore it now as a, as a major uh, ideological perspective, even if someone like Trump you know, is not necessarily someone with this great intellectual lineage of thinkers. Although it's interesting, even Trump does refer to the, the Hamiltonian 
uh, tradition. So I don't, maybe that's his speechwriter. I don't know that he's read Hamilton, <laughs> but, but he, he's, he's invoking this, oh, this is an American tradition, you know, from the 19th century. And, and so again, the importance of that pre-1945 history, understanding it as something that's being invoked politically today, I think is quite important. So you cover quite varied protagonists in, in your work and, and thus sources, of course. Could you discuss kind of the different kinds of actors that you look at and how their different positions um, affect the thought produced? You, you perhaps might mention an example if that makes it easier to answer. Yeah, that's a good question because I think when you get in that pre-1945 period, I mean, you you will be very familiar with this, but but it's less familiar for people in my field. Like people in my field will tend to go to scholars uh, and, and certainly... I go to a lot of scholars, but I also, I think in the pre-1945 period, political economy is not professionalized in the way that it is today. And so you really have to look at a much wider range of people because some of the most interesting thinkers have no, often no intellectual training themselves in political economy and yet developing very innovative ideas. So, um, you know, some of them are politicians. Um, so just thinking off the top of my head, like Sergei uh, Vita in, in Russia, you know, as a follower of List, so he reads List, but he's kind of a railway, you know, enthusiast, and then he becomes Russian finance minister. So he's not your scholar, you know, but he, but he's, he develops very interesting ideas. There's a lot of activists. So, you know, especially in the Marxist uh, tradition, like I talk about George Padmore or Tan Malaka in Indonesia or, or, or you know, major figure like Gandhi or Jane Addams in the feminist uh, tradition. There's a lot of um, people who are professionals, but not political economists, like lawyers, for example, are often writing about political economy. So Calvo in Latin America, for example, there's, there's farmers, you know. <laughs> Uh, so I have a, a section about Eve Balfour, who's, I think, a fascinating figure in the environmental movement, but she's just an organic farmer in Britain, you know, who begins to write about political economy. Uh, so, so it's a huge, I guess that would be my point. Oh, I should have mentioned, there's even scientists. Um, so again, this is a bit more in the environmental camp, like um, Frederick Soddy, who's a Nobel Prize winning scientist, writes about political economy. And and writes, I think, actually quite interesting ideas about about kind of environmental conceptions of of uh, political economy. So yeah, so my point is, this is a very wide range of people, uh, and maybe too wide for some people reading the book. Like they might say, you know, I was looking for a book that's where the scholars only, and this is not that kind of book. It's it's taking quite seriously um, the ideas of of often. I do, I do have a restriction, I should say that. I do have a restriction in the book because you have to draw a line somewhere. You know, are you going to talk about everybody? Everybody has interesting ideas. Um, and I do say they had to be prominent ideas. In other words, they had to be ideas that had some political influence. Uh, and, and that is a restriction. And so I think um, there are many figures that I leave out. And I'm, you know, I'm trying not to write a book that's a thousand pages long, and so you have to leave some people out. And but some of the people who are marginalized in history often had very interesting ideas, and I, I you know, I really had to draw a line on someone who had influence. That was just the criteria that I used. And so, do you find because they were different kinds of actors than just the more traditional scholar type that they produced different kinds of thoughts than someone like Adam Smith? Um, yeah, it's interesting. I, I certainly think some of them were much less disciplined in their thought. And so reading the texts, you know, or often like I was um, deriving their views from speeches, for example, rather than formal texts. And so it's not it's sometimes not the systematic kind of thinking that a figure like Smith would be 
developing. Or to go back to the example I gave earlier of these 18th century Chinese thinkers who are developing kind of proto, you know, uh, liberal ideas, if you want to call it that, um, like they're Chinese officials. And so uh, I, you know, I couldn't read the original, so I'm reading secondary literature about this, but the, 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 um, the descriptions of those uh, of their writing is kind of these are memos with practical problems about how to solve you know grain market problems or or how to you know be building certain development projects, and so it's not systematized, um, but I, I still think it needs to be taken seriously because as a as a kind of perspective, it was having a lot of influence in in uh, in that Chinese context or in in other contexts too. That's a really good example. It's something I found too when. When people would ask me, well, why have these Indian economists that I look at not been seen as economists before? And I think it's a lot to do with the kinds of sources that they produced. You know, they they had books that were just like um, Ramachandra Dutt, for example, had a whole book of just letters that he sent to Lord Curzon. Um, and one letter even read, you know, I sent you a letter three months ago. Why did you not respond? <laughs> and, and I think on one hand, it's because in the late 19th century, it was OK to publish a book of letters. Um, but also, I think it was because th th he was an official. He had a very particular goal about the kinds of about the research he he did, um, and so the systematic books or something that was not necessarily it wouldn't necessarily have served him better. So, and then then, yeah. then of course we as because we look for kind of models or systemized, we have an idea of what systemized thought is. And what an economics manual or or text looks like, we don't necessarily go to those texts. I, I totally agree with that, and and you're reminding me of this one Canadian figure who's I think one of the most interesting Canadian thinkers in the kind of mid late nineteenth century, Isaac Buchanan. Same thing, a four hundred page book, but it's just a mess of his speeches and letters, and but actually fascinating to read. I mean, it's time consuming because there's a lot of repetition. And sometimes the ideas are going off on you know crazy directions, but but still some serious ideas in there that that are worth taking seriously. And so that's our job, I think, is to is to tease that out and say, look, this was an interesting perspective. Was having these are speeches to thousands of people, so this is an influential person, and we need to take it seriously. Yeah, so it's this very similar kinds of sources that I read, and that the repetition is. I mean, if you make speeches that make sense, that you repeat because you're at a new you're in a, with a new audience or at least somewhat new at least. And so you have to repeat what you've said in the past. Yeah. And then, yeah. Um, next question. Do you find a lot of evidence of connections between your lesser known thinkers? Because I find these sources the hardest to find, but you I've noticed in your book that you found quite a few. Yes. Um, yeah. I, that's a really, um, I really like that question because I found some of those things to be the most stimulating in a way. So just thinking of examples. So yeah, there is a tendency, I think, in the history of ideas, at least, at least the ones that I was reading, to look for, you know, who does Smith influence? <laughs> or, uh, you know, who do the big thinkers influence? And yet there are these fascinating diffusions of ideas amongst lesser known um, thinkers. And so, okay, so to go back to a Canadian example, um, the one of the most interesting neo-mercantilist thinkers in the 19th century is a guy called John Ray, who is like he's just a high school teacher in Ontario, um, but he writes this incredibly detailed and this is a systematic treatise, like it's a very sophisticated uh, treatise, and this is in the 1830s, and uh, and so it's before List, 
but just as sophisticated as Liszt's book in 1841. Um, and but it gets almost no attention. In fact, in fact, poor John Ray uh, um, gets so depressed by the fact that nobody paid any attention that he stopped. He never wrote anything in political economy after that moment, and he didn't even have a copy of his own book. And later in his life, like he was so disillusioned. Uh, but the book gets picked up by a, a few people around the world, including like a Turkish uh, neo-Mercantilist thinker in the 1920s, who is like a major figure in the Kemalist movement, uh, who refers to John Ray. And so you just kind of think, how did that, how did that happen? Uh, and then there's other examples um, in the East Asian context that I think are really fascinating, where there's a tendency to look at the East Asian developmental state as, a, as having learned from European um, developmentalist thinkers like List. And, and even to this day, people many in my field say, you know, the Meiji restoration after 1868 was, was the reason they pursued state industrialization so successfully was because they had read List. And like, I just think this is a, a really um, poor way to think about the intellectual interests on the Meiji restoration. And this isn't just me, I'm reading Japanese, you know, historians of Japan who make the point that there was this deep, tradition going back to the 1720s in Japan of mercantilist thought, which was at the kind of daimyo level, like local level, and kind of daimyo competing with each other within this secluded state. And then when Japan gets opened up by Perry in the 1850s, they just transfer those ideas to Japan as a whole. Like that's, that's, and then they read list and they think, yeah, he's saying what we have believed for a long time. Um, but what's interesting in the East Asian context is the extent to which there was a circulation of these endogenously developed um, uh, both mercantilist, but also neo-mercantilist ideas. And, and what I actually, I found the most fascinating thing about that was that it wasn't so much a diffusion from Japan to China and Korea, the way I think we generally think about the history of the East Asian development state. Uh, there was a little bit of that, but there was also a lot of diffusion from China uh, to Korea and Japan. In other words, China as a kind of origin of some of the neo-mercantilist thought in, in East Asia. And it's, and it's for a really simple contextual reason, which is that China experiences the Western threat first, the Opium Wars. And you know that's happening um, a decade before Japan's being opened up and a couple of decades before Korea is being opened up. And so the China, this Chinese writing from the 1840s after the first opium war that says, oh my gosh, you know, we're faced with this threat from the West, we should pursue state-led economic development to try to catch up. And those writings are read in Tokugawa, Japan, uh, and in um, in pre in Korea in the 18, actually in Korea, it's amazing. One of the most important Chinese texts is read like one year after it's published in China, it's being read in Korea. And, the, and there's kind of a reform movement emerging in Korea, even before the pressure to open, because they've read Chinese you know, texts about the threat that China was experiencing. So just to go back to your question, like this is an example where there's no, none of the big thinkers that are in our textbooks are involved and yet a huge circulation, a regional circulation of ideas that really matters for understanding how China, Japan and, and Korea were collectively responding to the Western threat. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really fascinating reading your book and realizing how many connections you're finding between these less known things. I mean, the only... The kind of bigger one in my in 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 Indian economics is the fact that Marx read Naruji, right? And it's this fact that kind of everybody knows about, and then people think, ah, they probably had dinner in London at one point, but we don't. There's no evidence for it. But and it's mentioned in 
you know several books and um uh, and the, and the others are are a little bit harder to find. Is, it, is that is that confirmed? Because I I wrote in my book I wasn't quite sure that this was confirmed that, that there was an influence because I know that Marx refers to the drain, but he, but lots of people are referring to the drain, so it's not necessarily evident. So, so there are several sources that say that Neruji and Karl Marx may have met. The connection that I find the most convincing is that Naruji had a, um, a very good friend called Henry Hyman, a prominent, prominent socialist at the time, who had connections with Karl Marx. In fact, Hyman wrote in February of 1881 to Karl Marx saying that, I want you very much to meet Mr. Dabadan Naruji, to whom I am much indebted for facts and ideas about India. And then only a few days later, in a letter to the Russian economist, Nikolai F. Danielson, Marx spoke of a drain of wealth from India in language remarkably similar to Naruji's. So here I'm quoting from Dinwa Patel's biography of Naruji, who's done extensive archival work on Naruji's private papers in India. However, Eric doesn't find the evidence conclusive enough in Patel's book or in other sources. Like many other examples, when looking at these kinds of figures, hard evidence is hard to come by. But Patel makes the really, I thought, fascinating case, which I didn't know before, that that uh, there's an influence on American anti-imperialist thinkers, like liberal anti-imperialist thinkers. Yes, he does, I mean, yeah. So that's quite a wide, like it's more than just the British scene that he's, yeah, I found that fascinating. Yeah, no, abs abs yeah absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, it's European wide. I mean, he he talks at the Socialist International no, Socialist yeah. Congress. Yeah in 1904 in Amsterdam, right? And I think, yeah, and I read, you you know more about it than I do, but I read that he had a standing ovation, like this is not a marginal speech, it's a... <laughs> no, no, it's, yeah. it's, it's a, yeah. he, he gets a minute of silence before he even mm. talks for the Indians that had died in the latest famine. Mm. Um, and then he gets a standing ovation at the end when he, and he ends, you know, his speech saying that India needs to become independent. Um, mm. Because that's that's at the time when he starts to become really pro self rule, which he wasn't necessarily in his earlier um, in his in earlier in his life. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating! I didn't know that. Yeah. And it must Perfect. have been impressive. You know, they were they had these like large tables with all the different delegations, and then <sighs> hundreds of people in the balconies oh. above um, listening in. And he was like, I mean, I don't know if he was the only non European, but but. You know, if if there was maybe a handful of others, that would have been good. You know, so it was there were. I, I think you're right. He was one of only a handful, but there were there were a few others because there's that famous picture you can see online of him, and there's a, I think there's a Japanese figure there, and there's a couple of others. I think yeah, but he is such a. I mean, you you're much more expert on him than I am, but I found him really to be a fascinating figure. Yeah, and he and he really manages to to get very very far, especially considering his. Um, relatively poor background in in India, yeah. Mm. Um, and he's not as um, you know, you talk about him in his book too that he's you know an economic liberal. Um, he's he quite diverges quite a bit from some of the yeah. other um, economists, um, and is quite um, clear about that in his letters what he thinks. He's not scared of saying what he thinks, which is. Mm. Not, not an easy thing to do in that period, right? Um, right, and he and he's in the Cobden Club, and and I think yeah. he's even on the executive committee of the Cobden Club. So, so it's quite a yeah, he's quite a bold figure to be saying some of the things that he says. It's quite hard to argue that an idea is distinct or unique 
So how do you go about finding, but but also proving this distinctiveness? You know, I've spoken to global historians about this, and they they, they just they just don't even want to go there. They say no, there's no point. You know, like it, you can't prove this. And so I'm I was whereas I think it's quite a good goal. And so I was always very happy to hear that you <laughs> you also found that a good goal, and and you were also able to do it. So perhaps I could pick up <laughs> a little bit about how you do it. Um, oh yeah, that's a tough question. I I I guess I would agree that um, it's very difficult to say an idea is entirely distinct because everybody is drawing on ideas that they're they're you know they're all drawing on ideas that they've seen. But I do think people put together ideas in interesting ways, or at least relate an idea to a distinct context in a way that hasn't been done before, and so that modifies the original idea in some interesting way. And so the distinctiveness. Um, I think is there either in the mashup, you know, <laughs> of uh, two things that hadn't been brought together, or in the kind of adaptation, often of something that they've heard or read or whatever it might be. Um, and and I I kind of in the in these two books I kind of give examples of both of those, and I I usually call them distinctive ideas because I I see them as distinctive, and so the mashups. Excuse me. Um, trying to think of an interesting example of a matchup. Maybe one of the most interesting, maybe, would be Sun Yat Sen, who I find it just a fascinating figure. Um, so, you know, for people less familiar with Sun Yat Sen, so he's, you know, he's uh, becomes the first provisional president of China after the 1911 revolution, but he's also really interested in political economy. And some of his first writings are about political economy back in the 1890s. But he's doing a complete mashup where he's very widely read. And so he reads a lot of European and American work, um, but he's linking it to Chinese intellectual history that he's also very familiar with. And, and by the way, I should mention, he does his schooling in Hawaii. And so he also is drawing on uh, some local things he's seen in Hawaii, including kind of proto-Pan-Asian ideas that the uh, Hawaiian monarch was developing like very early on. So he's just drawing on all this stuff from all over the place and, and making synthesis. And so even to describe his views is difficult. Like I describe in one chapter as a neo-mercantilist because he clearly is committed to state-led industrialization with you know, kind of state China's power and wealth in mind. But in, but in another chapter, I describe him as a kind of neo-tributary thinker because he draws on the tributary tradition from Chinese, the Chinese past. But he's also kind of a Pan-Asian thinker. You know, he's just doing all kinds of different things. So that's, I think he earns a label of distinct, you know, it's pretty distinct. Um, but then there's these other examples, I think, where people are modifying stuff, like in less kind of dramatic ways maybe but still i think super interesting so an example might be um uh victor raul Torre in peru in the 1920s so he's a major political figure in in across latin america in fact in the 1920s and 30s he's leading a kind of a anti-imperialist movement he writes a lot so it's easy to study his work and um and he's got this idea which i think is totally distinct where he's saying we need to develop economic regionalism in latin america uh, to counter imperialist forces. But the, the nature of our anti-imperialism has to deal with the fact that we need foreign capital uh, to become wealthy and powerful, Latin America as a whole. Uh, and, and so we need that American money that's coming in, even though we see it as an imperialist force. And so maybe Latin America as a whole could 
cooperate to negotiate the terms of uh, American capital coming into the region. And like, I just think that's a very distinctive idea where he's, other thinkers had talked about the need to regulate foreign capital, including some of the Indian thinkers that you're, you write about. Um, but this is someone saying region-wide, there'd be cooperation to negotiate with foreign capital so that, you know, if Peru put too heavy regulations on it, it wouldn't just divert to Argentina or divert to Chile or whatever. So, you know, very creative and totally distinctive. I can't, I didn't find anyone else in the world who had that kind of a conception of, of economic uh, regionalism. And, and I don't know if you're interested in other examples, but another example would be Akamatsu in Japan, again, on the regional theme, where he develops this flying geese theory, which is just a really creative conception of, uh, of how uh, economic region might be put together. And it's in the context of serving the Japanese empire, the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere project that some, he's writing a little bit before that, but it becomes used as part of that. Uh, uh, but, but if we take it out of that context and just look at it as an idea, because after World War II, people continue to invoke the flying geese theory. And it's really distinctive. So he's he's read list. He's studied in Germany. He knows the German historical school, but he's um, but he's taking that and saying, uh, you know, Japan's doing this, but then it's going to spin off some industries to lower income countries in the region, and they then will develop, and then they'll spin off industries to even lower income, and they'll all move forward in a kind of a way that doesn't require any formal cooperation there's no you know international institution in the way the european union is or anything like that and it's also not free trade it's not regionalism on the basis of free trade everybody's doing near mechanicalist policies strategic protectionism but in this coordinated geese-like uh, fashion and you know that's a creative distinctive idea for sure and and so i you know i don't i don't feel uncomfortable calling that distinctive <laughs> even though he's drawing on many many things to develop it yeah, but like we've said already in this conversation, everybody does, right? We don't we don't live in a vacuum, right? We we read stuff as much as we might, especially in pre nineteen forty. We're not citing as much as we do today, so we're not necessarily perhaps conscious of the things that they read, but they will. Yeah, ideas flowed, and and you will know this as an historian of pre nineteen forty five. Ideas were much more global at that time than we think today, right? I totally agree with that. Yeah. And and that was a learning curve for me to understand that. I actually didn't understand that before. And I, I was constantly amazed by that because my own field of international political economy has had a movement for maybe 15 years now to globalize IPE. You know, we should be having more global conversations. And yet the global conversations in this earlier period were much more extensive and 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 often, you know, uh south to north, east to west, like all kinds of multi-directional flows uh, in a way that I, I just found fascinating. So the last question, which I know a lot of scholars don't like, but I like to ask everybody this. <laughs> if you have a particular <laughs> approach when you analyze your primary sources, that might be something more formal, like a natural approach, but it also just might be, a, you know, the kinds of sources you like to go to or the, you know, you can answer this question as, as you... <laughs> How you like is what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this is a really a fun question because, um, yeah, it makes you reflect on how you actually do your work, which, which in my own case is, is, um, you know, is a bit haphazard. Often, I, like I, I, I should have a more systemized method than I have. Um, but so if I were to try to describe the method, so in the case of the these two books, I basically went regionally, <laughs> and so. Uh, 
I would say, okay, I'm going to spend the first couple of years looking at Latin American thought. And I would immediately try to partner with someone who was more expert in the region because I just felt that was uh, an important thing to do uh, in terms of you know, improving my understanding and also uh, getting a sense what specialists think about this. Um, and then um, kind of looking at secondary literature as much as I could and then going to primary texts. And like a, to me, it was very important to read primary texts. Now, in, in many cases, I didn't have the language skills. And so I'm reading translations. I don't think I could have done this project easily um, 20 years ago. But, but the fact that the global intellectual history movement has been so, I think, fantastic in terms of the work that they've produced, it's made it much easier for someone from like me from outside of the discipline of history to, um, you know, to, to read often you know, translated texts or at least uh, secondary texts that are quoting extensively from original sources, um, which is not to say I know there's difficulties with translation. I don't want to minimize that, but but still gives us a good sense. Um, so so that's kind of, but, but then I think the other part of the method I use, which again is a bit haphazard, is that I'm always, almost always coming back to those primary texts multiple times because I find my first reading, I'm just missing a huge number of things. And I don't know that I'm missing them, but when I then go to another region of the world or, <clears throat> or maybe another dimension of the problem, say in that Latin American context, I suddenly think, oh, I think there was something in that, you know, that text I read a year ago uh, that I should go back and reread it. And I do read it and I see something completely different than I saw the first time. And sometimes it's like very large issues that I've missed in my initial reading. And so the more I began to see that, the more I made it a systematic thing so that I would always, like when I was coming up with the finalized chapter, I would always try to reread most of the primary texts that I was citing that chapter just to make sure, like, so I've got this picture in my head now of how to tell this history, but does it actually correspond with something I read four years ago? <laughs> or like, I've got to go back and read it. And, and that was often really, um, eye-opening because I would go back and read it and think, oh my gosh, like I, there's even more things that I hadn't seen, even in my second reading, you know? So that, that just became something that I tried to do as a strategy. And I, uh, so it's not, it's not something I was, you know, trained in or whatever, but it just seemed, um, it just seemed very important to do once I began to see its significance. It's definitely something I've done writing the book now is going back to the primary sources, um, even though I'd read them obviously during my PhD and it is very, very helpful. Um, I think because they are quite, you know, with like any texts, right, especially written in a context that you don't live in, can be quite hard to understand. And so reading them. Yeah, yeah. And third time is actually, yeah, almost necessary. Yeah. And yeah, and, and I'm sure I'm still missing you know, yeah. a huge number of things, uh, but, you know, doing the best that you can. Yeah, well, well, you've also, I mean, the contested world economy, you've also managed to have a succinct book that you can actually give to students i wanted to mention it earlier i mean this I, I was really impressed by the clarity of the of the book um how clear it was to read and that's obviously i'm mean, gonna thank you producing a book that was a pleasure to read because it's not always doesn't always happen in academia and it then means that it's something that we can give to our our students and especially these kind of short succinct chapters that yes of course means that you will lose some things but you also then produce something that's a bit more digestible 
Yeah, and that does go back to the reason I did it, that I really was trying to provide something for when a student comes to me and says, oh, I keep learning that I keep being told I'm supposed to know the deep history of this field. I wanted to say, well, you don't, you know, you don't have to read 15 books. You can read this one book really quickly. And if you find it interesting, there's 15 more books to read. But if you don't, at least you have a bit of a sense of a background. That was the goal. So, Yeah, and I think these books are necessary to the field. Yeah. So thank you so much. Um, it was an excellent, um, an excellent hour that we've spent together, and I've learned a lot. And let me just thank you so much too for your interest in in uh, in the book, but also thank you for your scholarship because you're one of the people who I was able to draw on who's doing this fantastic uh, work, so that someone like me as a non-specialist can quickly understand some things that are difficult to understand unless you've been reading it for as many years as you have. So so thank you both for your scholarship, but also for your for your interest. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more. The featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Midair Machine, and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio. Check out our website, cetrusneverparabus.net, for more information. Follow us on Twitter, cetrusnparabus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favorite podcast app.